0: Hello, Knowledge Seekers. In this episode of 20-Minute Books, we dive into Why Nations Fail by Darren Acemoglu and James A. Robinson. Both authors bring their substantial expertise and scholarship to probe one of history's most pivotal questions. Why do some nations achieve wealth and success while others struggle and remain incapacitated by poverty? This book explores the intricate tapestry of political and economic institutions to unravel the threads that dictate a nation's trajectory towards prosperity or failure. Atsemoglu, a respected professor of economics at MIT and recipient of the prestigious John Bates Clark Medal, often cited as a stepping stone to the Nobel Prize, combines forces with Robinson, a distinguished political scientist and economist with a professorship at Harvard. Robinson's extensive work in regions like Latin America and Africa anchors the book's insights in rich empirical research, solidifying his reputation as an authority on foreign aid and international development. Why Nations Fail is a compelling read for anyone fascinated by world politics, interested in the mechanisms of foreign aid, or seeking to understand the vast disparities that continue to define our global landscape. If you've pondered the complex roots of inequality or wondered what separates affluent states from those mired in endless cycles of poverty, this book offers a profound analysis that could reshape your understanding of wealth, power, and the potential roadmaps to a more balanced world. Join us on this enlightening journey to uncover the forces that shape the fates of nations. Why Nations Fail the origins of power, prosperity, and poverty. Introduction. Unlock the secrets behind the rise and fall of nations. Have you ever wondered why a world map reveals such a stark contrast in prosperity? Some countries flourish with innovation and wealth, while others are mired in poverty and conflict. This elusive puzzle has puzzled thinkers for ages, with solutions often pointing to cultural aspects or geographical luck. Yet the real game-changer isn't found in the landscape or the library of local customs. It's the nature of a nation's institutions that paves the path to failure or fortune. Through the pages of history, we find critical junctions where societies shape their destiny through the creation of institutions, the frameworks for how power is wielded and resources are distributed. These institutions are not simply buildings or laws. They are the beating heart of political and economic life. It's this institution building that sculpts a society's ability to harness or hinder human potential. Follow the narrative winding through these insights, and you'll uncover the blueprint that dictates whether a nation will thrive or wither away. Delve into the historical twists that defined global economies. Imagine the advent of the printing press and the waves of knowledge it could spread. But in the Ottoman Empire, it took centuries to take root. Why? Then, leap across to Brazil, where the tug of war between unions and a military dictatorship unveils the power of collective action. Venture back to Western Europe as it reels from the Black Death's grim touch, only to find an unlikely seedbed for economic growth in its wake. These aren't mere anecdotes from the past. They're vital pieces to the larger puzzle, explaining the complex interplay of political maneuvers, economic strategies, and institutional evolution that have shaped our world's nations. Whether it's a reign of openness or oppression, progress or poverty, it's this nuanced historical tapestry that holds the answers to the burning questions of our time. So let's pull back the curtains of history and examine the deep roots that nourish or strangle a nation's chances at success. Part 1. Global inequality transcends climate, culture, and knowledge. Picture a town cleaved in two by an international border, Nogales. On one side, Nogales, Arizona, basks in prosperity, while its Mexican counterpart, Nogales, Sonora, grapples with poverty. This is a riddle of disparity that stretches far beyond the arid lands of this twin city. Many have turned to the geography hypothesis to explain such economic chasms. Picture the stately Montesquieu, who centuries ago posited that climate shapes character, with colder environments breeding industrious inhabitants, while tropical climes lead to lethargy. Yet, as we gaze upon modern day contrasts, the lush but poor tropics against the richer temperate zones, we find this theory wanting, unable to account for thriving Singapore or Botswana. Turn now to a divided Korea. Or to the once divided Germany, where neither culture nor climate can justify the stark economic divergences. The cultural hypothesis, harking back to Max Weber, praised the Protestant work ethos as Europe's engine of industry. Still, this notion crumbles when faced with the uniform culture of a Korean peninsula that split down the middle into two vastly different states. Then there's the ignorance hypothesis. A theory that implores that poverty stems from a lack of knowledge on economic policy. Yet, the influx of aid and expert counsel to African nations struggles to leave an enduring mark, signaling that the gap is not simply bridged by information alone. It appears that none of these theories, geographical, cultural, or educational, truly get to the heart of global inequality. As we peel away these inadequate explanations, we prepare to uncover a more persuasive argument, one that looks at the foundational structures of societies themselves. Part 2. Institutions hold the key to the economic fate of nations. Step away from the murky depths of convoluted theories and behold a crystal clear insight. A country's wealth is not written in its stars, but etched in the very fabric of its institutions. These are the true arbiters of economic destiny, the intricate web of laws, systems, and norms that guide the flow of wealth and power. Imagine nations as gardens where these institutions are either nurturing caretakers or oppressive overlords. They shape every aspect of economic life, from property rights to the robustness of public services, and decisively from the corridors of finance. In this complex terrain of rules and regulations, two distinct types of institutions emerge, extractive and inclusive. Inclusive economic institutions are akin to fertile soil and abundant sunlight. They breed success by motivating everyone to plant their seeds of effort and innovation. You'll see this flourishing in places like South Korea and the United States, where laws protect intellectual property and sturdy financial and educational systems reward hard workers and pioneers. But contrast these... With the extractive kind, the parasitic weeds that choke a society's potential, siphoning resources to fuel the opulence of a select few. Colonial Latin America and North Korea stand as stark reminders, where the sweat of many is funneled into the coffers of an elite class, and where private enterprise is stifled under the weight of suppression. These economic institutions have their political counterparts, which can be equally nurturing or stifling. Inclusive, political institutions are marked by pluralism, a sharing of power that reflects a vibrant spectrum of societal voices. They require centralization, a keystone that upholds the rule of law, ensuring that no single group overpowers the rest. But when political institutions lack this spread of power or central authority, they teeter towards the extractive kind, fostering a society rife with divides and battles for dominance. The beauty of inclusive political institutions lies in their ability to dismantle extractive economic policies, sowing the seeds for prosperity that is widely shared, thus enriching the lives of all citizens. These institutions, be they economic or political, are the master gardeners that determine whether a nation will bask in wealth or wither in poverty. Part 3. Pivotal events can spark a chain reaction of institutional transformation. History's narrative is punctuated by singular moments that can alter the course of civilization. One such pivotal episode was the Black Death of the 1300s. This relentless plague ruthlessly carved its path along trade routes to Europe, claiming lives and leaving societal upheaval in its wake. The Black Death served as a grim harbinger for change, a critical juncture that sent ripple effects through the fabric of European society and set the stage for dramatic institutional metamorphosis. Before this catastrophe, Europe was held in the grip of feudalism. Kings parceled out lands to lords, who reigned supreme over their peasants. These common folks, tethered to a relentless cycle of harvesting and hefty taxes, were kept in strict subordination their fates decided by the whims of nobility. Yet, as the plague diminished populations, survivors found themselves in high demand, tipping the scales of power. Western European peasants, empowered by newly found leverage, began to clamor for reduced taxes and expanded rights. The pressure of demand helped crack the rigid feudal system, tilting it toward less extractive, more inclusive arrangements. Eastern Europe, in contrast, was a starkly different story. There, unorganized peasants could not muster the force to pry open the vice of feudal oppression. The outcome? Even more onerous demands and taxes, further feeding the extractive mechanisms that ensured their subjugation. This turning point, what we call institutional drift, illustrates how even closely related regions can veer onto divergent tracks given a strong enough push. A similar divergence occurred with the dawn of global trade and the colonisation of the Americas. Again, not all European nations reaped the same rewards, causing some to stray further from the path of inclusivity, while others seized the opportunity to mould more equitable institutions. Through these events, these critical junctures, we witness the slow but inevitable drift of institutions over time carrying nations along with them on currents leading to either shared prosperity or deepened inequality. What unfolds is a vivid illustration of how monumental events redirect the evolution of institutions and with them the destinies of nations. Part 4. England's Ascent to Power. A tale of political evolution and economic innovation. In the theatre of world history, England took center stage as an early pioneer of industrialization. The country's leap into the industrial age during the 17th century is a fascinating study of political foresight intersecting with economic ambition. The question is, why England, of all places? The answer lies wrapped in the embrace of time-honored political traditions that favored inclusivity dating back centuries. It's a lineage of liberty that took a firm hold with the Magna Carta in 1215, but truly bloomed during the glorious revolution of 1688. That pivotal revolt marked a transfer of power, exchanging royal dominance for a strengthened, if nascent, democratic parliament. This change wasn't just symbolic, it was transformative. The members of parliament, though representing only landowning classes, shifted the economic landscape to favour the kind of broad engagement that ignites fires of productivity and prosperity. Legal protection of property rights was enshrined, giving investors and innovators the assurance needed to pour resources into new ventures. The emergence of the Bank of England in 1694 exemplified the forward-thinking economic reforms of the era. By providing credit, the bank enabled British subjects to scale up their ambitions. Tax reforms chimed in harmony with industrial fervor, axing levies on manufactured goods and favoring land based taxes, which further spurred manufacturing growth. With a burgeoning state apparatus ensuring efficient excise collection and taxes reinvested into the economy, infrastructure witnessed a renaissance. Canals carved pathways for commerce, later joined by iron rails and chugging locomotives, knitting the country together in a network of trade and transportation all these intertwined factors fueled england's grand sprint into mass production catapulting its wares across the globe and cycling wealth back into the nation's coffers but the towering edifice of capitalism prompts a deeper query how did these shifts in economic muscle work to push england's institutions down a path of increasing inclusivity Let's delve further to uncover how a booming economy laid the groundwork for a more participatory and just societal framework. Part 5 How Inclusive Institutions Fuel a Self Reinforcing Cycle of Prosperity. Consider the saga of England once more. History shows us how inclusive institutions beget not only economic progress, but also an enduring reinforcement of inclusivity itself. With the seeds of pluralism sown into England's political fabric, a series of checks and balances naturally followed. Each empowered group had a vested interest in ensuring that no single faction gained too much authority, lest it upset the delicate balance that was to everyone's benefit. Through the 19th and 20th centuries, the realm of inclusivity expanded like the dawn's light suffrage spread from the hands of a wealthy few to a universal right unfettered by gender or class. People from all walks of life, through strikes, advocacy, civil action, stirred the cauldron of change, blending their voices into the call for representation. This struggle for suffrage did not take place in a void. England's existing institutions, centered on the principle of compromise, played a crucial role in channeling these demands. The elite recognized a simple truth, ignite the furnace of revolution and risk the molten destruction of wealthy stability. Best to temper the flames and forge a path of orderly transition. This broadened suffrage, echoing through hallways of governance, whispered of a political landscape growing more diverse in thought and representation. Economic structures followed suit, opening doors wider to include more participants in the prosperity they generated. In this intricate dance of societal evolution, the press was a crucial partner. It cast a watchful gaze on those in high seats of power, ensuring the electorate remained well informed and ready to challenge any hint of overreach. A glance across the Atlantic to America reveals a similar story. The early 1900s bore witness to titans of industry, the so-called robber barons, who wove their power into economic empires. But as media exposed their excesses and the public's outrage swelled, staid presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, William Taft and Woodrow Wilson, stepped forward to dismantle these monopolies with a decisive legislative stroke. This vigorous cycle, spiralled onward by a vigilant press and an attentive public, Showcases the remarkable resilience and self enforcing nature of inclusive institutions, keeping the wheels of democratic progress ever turning. Part 6 How the Fear of Losing Power Stunts Economic Growth. It's a common expectation that wise rulers would pave the way for their nations to prosper, choosing wealth over want. But history often tells us a different tale, one where political elites prioritize their own interests even if it means economic stagnation for their countries. Take the case of the printing press, a transformative invention that sparked an intellectual revolution across much of Europe by the late 15th century. However, the Ottoman Empire viewed this instrument of enlightenment with deep suspicion. To the ruling class, the spread of information equated to a dilution of their control, a risk they were not willing to take. And so, With a prohibition on printing in Arabic that lasted until the 18th century, an empire's opportunity for widespread education and progress was quashed, leaving the vast majority of its subjects illiterate compared to the relatively well-read populace of England. Another growth-inhibiting specter that haunts ruling circles is the concept of creative destruction, where innovation sweeps away older industries For the sake of efficiency and advancement, Austrian Emperor Francis I personified this trepidation in the early 19th century, staunchly opposing industrial technologies like the sewing machine and railroads. His unease was twofold fear of catalyzing a revolutionary spirit among the masses and concern that new industries would displace the established ones, causing loyal elite supporters to lose their economic and subsequently political footing. This resistance to the tide of the industrial era caused Austria to lag woefully behind. Even as the rest of the world embraced coal for iron production, the Austro-Hungarian Empire clung to its charcoal, a poignant metaphor for a refusal to modernize. When the empire disintegrated post-Main World War I, it left behind an economy where the looms of progress had barely turned. These vignettes from history graphically illustrate how the consolidation of power, The fortress that elites often build around themselves can inadvertently undermine a country's developmental journey, trapping it in a web of outdated mechanisms ill suited for advancement. Part 7 The Stubborn Shadow of Extractive Institutions While inclusive institutions shape prosperous futures, extractive institutions cast long shadows over societies, with historical currents carrying them far beyond their origins. Consider the enduring impact of slavery, arguably one of history's most heinous extractive institutions. Prior to the arrival of European colonists, slavery was not uncommon in Africa. However, with the colonists' insatiable demand for labor to sustain their burgeoning New World plantations, the scales of enslavement tipped dramatically. African rulers, seizing an opportunity for profit, escalated slave trading to unprecedented levels with prisoners of war and even petty criminals finding themselves shackled and sold. European traders imported not just wealth into Africa but also weaponry, fueling a cycle of violence and conquest. Although the transatlantic slave trade was officially abolished in the early 19th century, the practice of slavery adapted, with Africans being exploited on their own soil for both local and export markets. The shadow of these extractive institutions did not recede with the waves of independence that swept Africa in the 20th century. Look at Sierra Leone, a former British colony where the imprint of colonial administration lingers to this day. Paramount chiefs, once appointed by British decree, are now elected for life by a small, exclusive group, maintaining a political stronghold that is every bit as extractive as it was during colonial times. Similarly, economic systems designed to siphon wealth from the many to the few have endured. The Sierra Leone Produce Marketing Board, originally established by the British to protect farmers, mutated into a mechanism for extreme taxation, serving the interests of a powerful few rather than the populace. This raises a pertinent question. Why didn't these exploitative systems crumble with the advent of independence? Why did the chains of extraction prove so unbreakable even when the iron grip of colonialism was supposed to have loosened? In our search for answers, we must plunge into the complex interplay of power, culture, and the human propensity to uphold systems that, while disadvantaging many, benefit the few who hold the reins. Part 8. The Entrenchment of Power How Extractive Institutions Maintain Cycles of Disadvantage Extractive institutions often take root when leadership eschews national development in favor of tightening their grip on power. Yet these aren't temporary arrangements. Rather, they become entrenched systems that perpetuate cycles of exclusion and impoverishment, often outlasting the regimes that created them. Consider the slaveholding states of the U.S. in the 19th century a ruling class of white landowners reaped economic benefits from the enforced labor of enslaved black individuals who were systematically denied political and economic agency. The end of the Civil War and the abolishment of slavery in 1865 seemed to herald a new era as black men were granted suffrage. However, the entrenched elite were quick to contrive new methods of exploitation and disenfranchisement, such as introducing poll taxes and literacy tests, specifically designed to exclude black voters. The legacy of these extractive institutions was enshrined in the notorious Jim Crow laws. These regulations institutionalized segregation and perpetuated the cycle of economic extraction and political disempowerment among the black population. This phenomenon isn't unique to the United States. German sociologist Robert Michaels in the early 20th century spoke of the iron law of oligarchy, suggesting a natural gravitation towards oligarchic structures, seemingly immune to revolution or reform. This concept applies well beyond individual nations to the broad sweep of post-colonial Africa. Here, colonial powers implanted extractive institutions, which have shown remarkable resilience and longevity, persisting long after those powers withdrew. Those who ascend to the upper echelons of such systems are almost invariably drawn into the vortex of power consolidation. Sierra Leone's first president, Siaka Stevens, stands as a textbook example. By systemically undermining the Mende ethnic group which supported his opposition, Stevens not only cemented his own authority, but also continued the destructive legacy of exclusion and extractive governance. Thus, Extractive institutions fuel a vicious web of political self-interest and poverty, fostering environments where the needs and voices of the broader populace are ignored in the relentless pursuit of power and control by a select few. Part 9. The Paradox of Progress Within Extractive Regimes At first glance, the Soviet Union serves as a curious anomaly in historical economic discourse a nation decidedly characterized by extractive political and economic mechanisms, yet demonstrating bursts of impressive innovation and growth. From its inception to the zenith of its power in the 1970s, the Soviet Union emerged as a hub of ingenuity, launching the first human into orbit and boasting robust economic vitality, with an average annual growth of 6% from 1928 to 1960. Central to this paradox was the untapped potential of the Soviet territories, lands where feudal systems had long stifled progress. The strategic migration of resources from the stagnant agricultural arena to the bustling industrial sphere sparked substantial growth. It was a surprise against the backdrop of extractive policies. Property rights were scarce. Worker motivation was based on the threat of punishment and all power was concentrated in the hands of a single-party dictatorship. Still, the upward trajectory could not be sustained. After the initial economic jumpstart, growth options dwindled. The system, not designed to naturally foster innovation, hit a plateau. Why doesn't growth thrive under extractive conditions? The mechanisms these systems use to motivate labor, or more accurately, control it, are flawed. Governing elites endlessly tweak and tinker with the economy, but such interventions often lead to errors. Take the Soviet innovation bonuses of 1956, for instance. They attempted to encourage productivity, but the productivity measures were tied to a company's total wage bill. The result was a counterintuitive punishment for innovations that saved labor, effectively dissuading the very progress they were meant to stimulate. Moreover, leaders under extractive systems tend to resist the disruptive force of creative destruction, where new technologies upend old industries. Innovation, while a source of growth, also threatens the elite's hegemony, presenting a risk they are typically unwilling to take. Lastly, extractive political landscapes are fertile grounds for power struggles. There's a tempting wealth that comes with absolute authority, and many vie for a taste of that power. Such internal battles can sow the seeds of instability and stunt any prospects for lasting growth. In summary, growth in extractive environments, while not impossible, often proves transient. The inherent limitations of these systems, averse as they are to change and innovation, ultimately chain economies to a ceiling they struggle to break. Part 10 transforming nations from poverty to prosperity a challenging yet attainable journey navigating the labyrinth of institutional change can seem a daunting task yet history demonstrates that with determination countries can shift from the shackles of extractive institutions to the liberating frameworks of inclusive governance enabling sustainable economic uplift how can nations entrenched in cycles of poverty initiate their march toward greater prosperity. The essential lesson is this. History does not dictate the future. Although patterns of institutional development often emerge from the wake of pivotal events, destiny is not etched in stone. Vicious cycles of poverty, like their virtuous counterparts, are not impervious to change. It took cataclysms like the Black Death and relentless waves of capitalist innovation for Britain and Western Europe to evolve from oppressive extraction to inclusivity. In the Southern United States, the long-standing bastion of institutional racism began to yield under the persistent pressure of the civil rights movement. Change resonates with the rhythm of time and the cadence of collective action. Moving forward, a guiding principle emerges, Nurture inclusive institutions across the globe for universal prosperity. It's clear that foreign aid alone cannot dismantle deeply rooted extractive systems. Instead, aid must be wielded with precision, empowering those marginalized from the dialogue of power to challenge the status quo. The story of Brazil shines as a beacon of hope. The unraveling of its military dictatorship didn't stem from external saviors, But from the relentless force of its own people, galvanized by labor unions and civic activism. Through their unity and resistance, Brazil's citizens charted a course toward democracy and economic vigor. In the early 21st century, their economy's rapid ascent bore testament to what is possible when the tight grip of oppression is loosened. Every chain of poverty and extraction can be broken. It's a process that demands more than simple goodwill or external intervention. It requires a steadfast commitment to fostering institutions that reflect the diversity and aspirations of their people. Only then can nations truly unlock their potential, transforming cycles of despair into cycles of growth and shared success. Final Summary The tapestry of global wealth and poverty is not a pattern woven by fate, nor is it dyed in the hues of cultural or geographical determinism. The linchpin lies within the very architecture of a country's institutions. Across the expanses of time, it is the nature of these economic and political structures, whether they open the gates of opportunity for all or concentrate power among the few, that sculpts the destiny of nations institutional landscapes are not static. They are carved out through centuries, with certain events acting as forks in the road that lead societies down paths of inclusivity or extraction. It's this foundational environment that either nurtures a nation's collective prosperity or sows the seeds of enduring poverty. However, history is not a straitjacket that condemns societies to perpetual cycles of misfortune. With concerted, strategic interventions aimed at reforming these foundational structures, change is not just possible but attainable. Empowering excluded voices, refining foreign aid strategies, and fostering grassroots movements can catalyze the dismantling of entrenched extractive systems. Transforming nations from impoverished to prosperous requires not only understanding the pivotal role of institutions, but also committing to the long-term endeavor of cultivating inclusivity. With diligence and unwavering resolve, the chains of disadvantage can be undone, unfurling sails for a more equitable world where every nation has a fair wind behind it.